This is the fourth sermon in our series, This Is My Son, Listen to Him. Uh, In this first part of the series, we're working our way through the Sermon on the Mount, which we are uh, calling, uh, rather than a sermon, a covenant declaration. Uh, Let's uh, remember, remind ourselves of the uh, the elements of this covenant declaration that we've seen so far. Uh, Firstly, we saw the announcement of the covenant blessings that come from uh, the Father in heaven uh, to his covenant children, uh, the, the Beatitudes. Uh, then we saw the, the mission statement of his people who are called to hallow his name, show his name to be holy uh, in the whole earth. Uh, the, the pictures there of salt and light. And thirdly, uh, last week we saw the solemn call to obedience to the law for for all who would be citizens of uh, his coming kingdom. Well, now we come to the uh, the main body of the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus begins to expound the law itself. Now, brace yourself, because this won't necessarily be an easy journey. Jesus will show us what kind of righteousness it is that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees that he said the law calls us to uh, in the verse just before this. Jesus will strip back the traditions and the distortions that people had uh, placed on the law so that we can not only see what the law actually says but what the law actually means and how huge the implications are for anyone who hears it and seeks to obey it. Are we going to uh, to look at each section one by one? And uh, Peter Lang is going to read uh, each of those sections for us. So let's hear the first section. Good morning, everyone. We're having a series of readings this morning from Matthew chapter 5 starting with verses 21, and I'm reading to 26. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser, while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you will be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Here, as in each section, uh, Jesus quotes uh, directly from the law, and then he challenges 
the uh, the human traditions that had been used to distort it or or water it down or or even shockingly we'll see give people what they think is an excuse to actually disobey the law. He talks here about being uh, liable to judgment for murder, uh, and this phrase here uh, is referring to the, the local courts, the, the justice system that was set up uh, in the law for Israel. Uh, we see it here. Uh, you shall appoint judges and officers in all your towns that the Lord your God is giving you according to your tribes and they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. You shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality and you shall not accept a bribe. For a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous. Justice and only justice you shall follow, that you may live and inherit the land the Lord your God is giving you. So a a call there to uh, a justice system that is truly just, without compromise. Uh, and it was to be set up in all of the towns and the cities throughout the land. Now, this kind of local court would deal with the crime of murder uh, in whatever town it was committed. But Jesus here takes things a step higher with this command. He says that this is a matter that actually starts in the heart before it even reaches its fullest expression in murder. It starts with anger. Anger is a seed which, if planted and nurtured, grows into a great destructive tree. And the first fruit that shows of the anger in the heart is words. As Jesus said, Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The uh, human traditions uh, treated murder as something that could be dealt with on a purely human level. But Jesus here lists three different levels of authority. There is the the judgment of the local court, uh, but then he speaks of the council which is the Sanhedrin based in Jerusalem, they were like the Supreme Court. They dealt with serious crimes and state matters. But above all is God, who is the judge of all and who alone has the authority to send someone to the hell of fire. Now we might expect him to say that the high crime of murder deserves judgment from the highest authority. But he surprises us by saying something quite shocking. So first, uh, he says, anger, uh, a dispute between two people, is something that should be dealt with by the local court. Then second, insulting someone is to be dealt with by the Sanhedrin. Uh, You wouldn't normally... um, expected to go to the high court simply for insulting someone. Uh, Literally, 
what he says here is anyone who says raka to. Uh, raka was an Aramaic insult that meant a person was morally degenerate. It was considered the, the worst word you could use of someone. It was a direct attack on their integrity, a judgment of their relationship with God. So Jesus says this, this is a crime that's worthy of going to the Supreme Court, the Sanhedrin. And then thirdly, he says, calling someone a fool, uh, literally the word there is moron. That's where we get our word moron from. He says, calling someone a moron makes you liable to hell itself. In the eyes of God, calling someone a moron is the same as if you had literally murdered them. See how Jesus has raised the bar of the law such that the command, you shall not murder, has full bearing on our thoughts, on the intentions of our hearts, on our words, even before it condemns our actions. But that's not the only twist that Jesus gives here. See how he applies this command in verses 23 to 26 in a way that is completely other person centred. So if I'm at the temple offering a, a gift for my own sins and I remember that I did something against someone else that would give them reason to be angry with me then I'm implicated in their sin of anger I hold some responsibility for leading them into temptation where where they are in danger if their anger is not dealt with of calling me a moron and being liable to God's judgment so if if I am to love my neighbour as myself I need to go and be reconciled with them first otherwise my offering at the temple is just an act of hypocrisy notice also the the personal relational aspect of this before getting to court I should strive to be reconciled with them as my brother or sister and in so doing the relationship would be restored see if I hold my ground and I fight it out in court, I'll end up paying the penalty, and so my neighbour will get justice. But what will be left of the relationship? There will be justice, but there won't be reconciliation. So in this first command, and in all of the following commands, Jesus is teaching us something really important. In every situation the law requires us to look first at ourselves and our own sin before looking at others and our perception of their sin it also shows us that the law itself is entirely other person centered it's not about what i get for myself it is about how i am to love my neighbor as myself Reading from verse 27. You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. 
But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body is thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Well, the same principle of the heart is applied to the command, you shall not commit adultery. It's not just the physical act, but it's the intention of the heart. And we shouldn't miss the seriousness of this. The word lustful doesn't, or, or desire, doesn't uh, merely apply to sexual desire. It's a word for desire in general. It's the same word that Jesus used when he said to his disciples that he earnestly desired to eat the Passover feast with them. So adultery isn't just a sexual sin. It's, it's the desire for another person for what we think they can give us in a way that's not appropriate. In other words, uh, outside the context of biblical marriage. So it may be sexual, but it may be emotional. Or it may, may just be a selfish whim. But it's all desire and it's all, uh, in the eyes of the law, adultery. But now we should also note how Jesus says this desire means that the person has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now we might reason that whatever happens in the secrecy of our heart has no effect on others. But not only does the way we think of or desire a person in our hearts still dishonour them, but it will inevitably impact our relationship with them, how we relate to them, with the uh, potentially the eventual outcome of actually committing that physical sin. And that then will impact far more people than just uh, us and them alone. I need to make mention here of a great evil that we face today, uh, more than we ever have in the past. The online pornography industry is worth currently $97 billion globally. In one year, more than the equivalent of 58 billion hours, which is 665,000 years of pornography was viewed in just one year. And that's just the statistics from one of the thousands of websites. That's more than Netflix, Amazon and Twitter combined. The industry is linked to child exploitation or that's child exploitation to human trafficking 
to drug use and organised crime. So our modern society, with the aid of modern technology, has turned adultery into a multi-billion dollar industry. And it's wreaking havoc across the world, causing great harm to men, to, to families, to women and children who are exploited and treated as objects instead of as God's image bearers. Now what does Jesus and the perfect standard of the law demand in this? Tear out your eye, cut off your hand, extreme measures indeed. Now fortunately Jesus isn't saying this as a literal instruction. He's highlighting the, the extreme action that anyone depending on the law for their righteousness would have to go to to stop themselves from sinning in this area. Human relationships and particularly sexual and emotional desire is one of the most powerful forces that we have to reckon with. I've seen people give up opportunities for ministry. Uh, I've even seen people give up their own profession of faith in Christ simply because they've chosen an inappropriate romantic relationship over and against living for Christ. In this area, unless our hearts are transformed by the work of the Holy Spirit, nothing else is able to overcome it. But see how again, Jesus makes this the matter of loving our neighbour. Adultery is a sin to avoid, not simply for the sake of our own personal holiness, but for the sake of those whom our sin will impact. Reading verses 30 and 31. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Well, related to the uh, issue of, of uh, adultery is this matter of divorce. And here, Jesus tackles the way that people took a provision in the law and used it as an excuse to disobey the law. The law didn't permit divorce, per se. However, the law acknowledged that divorce happens. And it gives provisions designed to protect the most vulnerable person in that situation, which in those days was always the woman. So if a man did divorce his wife, contrary to the law, he was required to give her a certificate of divorce, which would free her from that marriage and allow her to be legally remarried. This was so important in ancient societies where where a woman would rarely be able to survive unless they were a member of a household, either as a daughter or as a wife. Her only option otherwise would be begging or prostitution or to 
to enter into a relationship that society considered shameful and which would make her an outcast. That was the situation of the Samaritan woman that Jesus spoke to at Jacob's well. He caused the scandal because he was simply talking to her and even more of a scandal when he offered to her the living waters of God's grace. So a certificate of divorce would allow the woman to enter into a legal and legitimate second marriage and thus be protected and provided for despite her first husband's selfishness. So this law designed to protect vulnerable women had been turned around and used as permission for a man to discard his wife for whatever reason he chose as long as he gave her a certificate. A law designed to instruct men on how to love their wives as themselves had become a justification for loving themselves alone. So again, Jesus reorients our view to see the other person-centred nature of this law. He's saying, don't, by your selfish desires and actions, back someone else into a corner where they have no other option but to break the law themselves. As I said last week, behind these commands in the law lies the glorious character of God, who remains passionately and jealously faithful to his bride, the church. Even when his people were guilty of the most horrendous acts of adultery, when they turned from him to worship idols, he remained faithful. The vision of the Bride of Christ in the book of Revelation with her pure white dress without blemish or stain or wrinkle is a vision not of a bride who has kept herself pure and faithful from the very beginning, but it's a vision of a bride who has been redeemed from the the depths of adulterous shame and unfaithfulness and restored to glory by the grace of Jesus who laid down his life for her. That's what this command is pointing us to. Reading from verse 33. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Now we might feel that the matter of swearing an oath uh, is a significant step down the importance ladder after murder, murder and adultery. However, as we'll see, it's actually of great importance. Uh, the first thing to note is that 
uh, Jesus here is quoting uh, two separate commands that the people had conflated into one. The first, from Leviticus 19, you shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. That's clearly a reiteration of the third commandment. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. It's not about using God's name flippantly as an expletive, but it's about using his name to seal contracts and business deals, to, uh, to use his name to serve your own ends, to get something you want uh, when you have no intention of following through on what you promise. Not only does that harm your neighbour, but it treats God himself with dishonour as if he's unable to actually keep you accountable. You just use his name flippantly to, uh, to seal the deal. The second one he's referring to is in Numbers 30. If a man makes a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. This is about making promises to God himself. Making a promise to God is a serious thing and anyone who does needs to see that they will be held accountable by him for breaking it. Now, the Lord never instructed people in general to make vows to God unless they were a king or a priest. However, it did command them to be faithful to any vow that they did make. And see how Jesus picks up on the wording of the command from Numbers 30 to show us again the highest standard that the law demands, a personal integrity that doesn't actually require me to swear either by the Lord's name or anything that represents him, be that heaven or earth or Jerusalem or even to swear by my own head, a way of saying, may I drop dead if I don't follow through. Rather, a person living in perfect obedience to this perfect law should be able to simply say yes or no, with their own character being the guarantee that they'll be faithful to their promise. This too is an other person-centred command. The promises we make impact others and the promises that we break cause harm to others and behind this command too is this perfect character of God who who lets his yes be yes and his no be no he puts his own holy and righteous character forward as the guarantee of his faithfulness reading from verse 38 You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, Go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you. 
do not refuse the one who would borrow it from you. Now this, I believe, is one of the more misunderstood parts of this passage. Uh, An anonymous quotation uh, wrongly attributed to Gandhi is, an eye for an eye will leave the whole world blind. And so it's often thought that Jesus here is uh, is overturning uh, this statement, but he's not. He again is quoting directly from the law, which he said he had not come to abolish. He says, if there is harm, you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. This principle appears a few times in the law and it's called the principle of reciprocity. It's not about revenge, but it's about how the justice system must make sure that someone who is harmed in any way is compensated according to the same measure. It didn't mean that you must have your eye poked out if you injured someone else in the eye, but that the compensation you pay must actually make up for the harm or the loss that you've caused. It's a good principle that lies at the foundation of any fair and good justice system, including our own in this nation. So if we look at the applications Jesus gives, we we see that he's talking primarily about matters of justice. See how the assumption is that I'm in a position where someone has brought a charge against me, which means I've sinned against someone else. So what does the law require of me when the justice system demands compensation, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, for something that I have done? Well, striking someone on the cheek was considered one of the most humiliating things you could do to a person. It was what someone in a place of high authority would do to discipline their slave, or what a Roman soldier would do to pull into line someone being disrespectful to their authority. Nevertheless, it was still a punishment dealt to someone who was at least perceived to have done something wrong. So you disobey the authority, the law says, be struck on the cheek. If someone was suing me and taking my tunic, it was because the local court required it in compensation for what I had done to them. Maybe I'd torn their tunic and I had to replace it. If someone forced me to go a mile, that's because I was required to do so. Maybe carrying a load or or assisting them in some way as compensation for what I had done for them. What does Jesus say? The principle of justice, an eye for an eye, would say, pay them back the equivalence. Jesus says, well, yes, and then double it. 
see that this is not about seeking justice for myself or not seeking justice for myself if someone does me wrong, as much as it is making sure that when I do wrong to someone else, I not only see that they receive the justice that they deserve under the law, but but more, that they receive generosity. If the law says I owe them something, I should seek to give them twice as much as what I owe them. Why? Other person-centred. Because I should be seeking to love my neighbour, not make them love me. Reading verses 38 to 42. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbour and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This final section really wraps all the others up together to show that they are all about loving my neighbour as myself. And it was because this, the second of the two greatest commands of the law, had been watered down and distorted. A rich young man who came to Jesus and asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I was told by Jesus, among other things, love your neighbour as yourself. But then he asked, who is my neighbour? And uh, Luke tells us it was, he was seeking to justify himself. It's a very convenient way, isn't it, to sidestep and avoid this command by coming up with a definition of neighbour that makes it easy for me to love them. I like to think that my neighbour is the person who looks like me, who thinks and talks like me, who is kind to me, who gives me good things and good feelings. Uh, Someone whom by loving I'll face the minimum inconvenience or loss or embarrassment. In short, My neighbour, I think, is those people whom I deem as worthy of my love, as if I were the arbiter of worthiness. That kind of love actually boils down to one thing, self-love, because I'm only loving those who give something to me. So who is my neighbour? Jesus told this rich young man that his neighbour was a Samaritan, a person who was uh, most despised by any respectable Jew. 
Jesus tells us here that our definition of neighbour must include our enemies, those who persecute us, those who have struck us on both cheeks, those who have taken our tunic and our cloak, those who have forced us to walk two miles with them, those who have begged from us, who have borrowed without promise of return, those who have committed adultery against us, who have taken us to court, who have been angry with us, who have called us a worthless moron. Jesus has opened up the law for us and shown us its fullest glory and its extreme standard of perfection, summed up in this command to love our neighbour as ourself. I hope that this has all made you feel uncomfortable. Maybe you're even offended. Maybe you're bothered that this sounds too extreme. I hope that's how you're feeling because that's what the law is supposed to do. The law reveals to us the absolute moral perfection of the Father and tells us you must therefore be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. This, that's what it means to be sons of your Father who is in heaven, to be just like him. The Father requires nothing less of his own image bearers than to be perfect as he is perfect. And by revealing this perfection of the Father and calling us to it, the law also exposes our imperfection, our inability, our unwillingness to seek that perfection, our rebellious hearts that would want to rub out God's image in us and to replace it with our own, to set our own standard for morality and determine ourselves what's right and wrong. These are the hearts, our hearts, that Jesus is confronting in this passage today. Hearts that take the law of God and clutter it up, that obscure it with traditions and try to make it easier than it is so that we can arrogantly boast that we are keeping it, when in reality we're simply following our own sinful, selfish desires and our righteousness is just a shallow facade because we're more interested in winning the approval of other people than in pleasing and honouring God, uh, which we'll see in next week's passage. As soon as we hear these words of Jesus and, uh, and either we dismiss them by saying, yes, but, or I don't think he meant that strongly, or or we arrogantly say, okay, I reckon, I reckon I can do all that, then we're actually closing our hearts to the message of the gospel. The gospel doesn't say, look at the law and try a bit harder. The gospel doesn't say, okay, I know the law's a bit strong, but you're actually okay as you are. You don't need to seek the Father's perfection. No, the, law, the, the gospel says to us 
in our inability and our unwillingness that the law has exposed, you need this perfect righteousness. There's no entry into the kingdom of heaven without it. But this is a righteousness that you can only know through Christ and through the gift of his righteousness to you as you are justified through faith in his blood. When we pray, as Jesus taught us, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's a prayer saying that, yes, his law, as Jesus has shown us, is that good and perfect and holy expression of his will. It is the the only standard for true, authentic human living. And we're acknowledging that the Father's name will only be shown to be holy when his will is done on earth by humanity. But we also pray in light of the one man who has done the Father's will on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus, Jesus who perfectly fulfilled the law. We can rejoice as we pray because this prayer, your will be done, has been answered in Jesus on our behalf. And so it also then becomes a prayer, as uh, Paul says in Philippians 3, a prayer that we will be found in him, not having a righteousness of our own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Well, this has only been part one of uh, Jesus' exposition of the law. Next week, we'll look at part two of Your Will Be Done, um, Practicing Righteousness.